Well, I appreciate the elders letting me have the chance, one, to present this to you, but the greater appreciation is allowing, I guess I can speak on, the, on behalf of Deanna as well, is allowing us the opportunity to get to go to Haiti. Um, I don't know how you all have always felt sitting here listening to Brother Jack Honeycutt, to Ron Gilbert, several others that have come and presented about different mission trips that they've been on in the past, but you always kind of sit back and think, it's like, yeah, that's great, I can't do that. There's no way I can go and I can preach before people or try to teach somebody. It's not what you think. Anybody can do this. This doesn't take anybody that has some kind of special degree in the Bible to be able to do something like this. And it, it was really an eye-opening experience for me to understand that it, anybody really can do this. So what I'm going to kind of do tonight, and I'm glad we got a little bit of time, I, there was probably nine or ten hundred, ten hundred, nine hundred or a thousand pictures to go through that everybody had thrown together, and I had to kind of sort through a lot of them. And so I've put a lot of pictures in this. I'm going to go fairly quickly through a lot of them. If you do have any questions about any of this, I will kind of hang around up front after it's over. Feel free to come ask questions. We can talk all night long. Because um, it's still kind of one of those things that's on my mind. I'm kind of energetic about it, and I'd, I'd talk about it all night if you want to. So um, we'll go real quickly through it. And the, the first few slides I've got is really to kind of give you an idea about, if you don't know where Haiti's at, what our plan was while we were down there, some basic statistics about Haiti, and then I'll get into kind of what we did. So. Map of the United States, in case you do not know, Haiti is right there, where that little red circle's at. That also means we were down very close to the equator, so when we were gone, I think, well, we left Cookville that Saturday morning on the 10th at like 4.45 in the morning. We met over at Sycamore's church building, all grabbed a bus, and we took it to the airport. When I got up that morning, it was 10 degrees. When we landed in Haiti that afternoon at like 1.30 or something, I think it was like 88 or 89. So... There was a very drastic temperature difference while we were gone. Um, a lot of people, I mean, obviously, the change in weather like that, we had several people that had sinuses getting messed up, just not used to such a large fluctuation in temperature, but we all got through it pretty well. So down in that area, you can see the tip of Florida sticking up at the top, and so um, you have Cuba, and Haiti is right there where you see a little uh, star down in that corner. So that's what the country of Haiti looks like. On the, the kind of yellow section on the right-hand side of that, that's the Dominican Republic. It's one big island together, kind of split in half. Haiti is the, the western half of the island. The area that we spent all our time in was right there. That's where Port-au-Prince is at. That is the capital of Haiti. Most people know the name Port-au-Prince around here, I guess, from back in 2010. Everybody remembers what happens then. There was a 7.8, 7.7 something magnitude earthquake that hit about 15 miles the epicenter was about 15 miles off the coast of Port-au-Prince, kind of out in that Bay Area. Um, obviously, it was very devastating to the country. It was already a third world country before that point. This just made it worse. Um, and so a lot of the things that we're going to see and we're going to talk about is some of the things that are still kind of hanging over from when that happened. Um, there were roughly, I believe they said, about 250 to 300,000 people that were killed on that day. They don't really know the number because there's really no way to keep track of it. They, they still never found. Um, so it, it was a very, um, obviously, devastating situation for them. There have been teams and teams and teams of mission teams that have gone down there from not only within the church but several denominations all over the world, obviously, have been going down trying to do things to help. So a lot of their economy has got built back to what it was prior to the earthquake, but there's still some, um, some issues lasting from it. So this is kind of that circled area where we're at. You can see right in the center, that's the airport in Port-au-Prince. That's where we flew into. This first star up at the top, right above it, you may not be able to see the word, but that says Santo. The Santo area is where we spent all of our time at. Uh, the congregation that we went at, the guest house we stayed at, there's two little yellow stars on there. Those are the two places that while I was there, I had an internet connection, and so I was able to pinpoint those on Google Maps, the coordinates of it, so you could see where we were at. That first one right there is the guest house. That's literally where we stayed at. There's a congregation out in East Tennessee. It's Estes Church of Christ. They, and this was prior to the earthquake they did this, they purchased some land, and they built a house down there specifically designed for mission teams from, the, from any congregation of the Lord's Church that wanted to go down and work. It was a house for people to stay in. It'll house, I think they said 35 to 40 people uh, to stay in the house. 
So that's where we stayed at. There was also an orphanage there that we went and did some work at. There was no internet connection, so I couldn't pinpoint where it was at on the map, but it's in that Santo area. There was a congregation at Santo Church of Christ we went and worked at, um, held a meeting at. And then this other little star, there's a school of preaching that's down there. It's called the International School of Theology. We went there uh, at least twice. One time we went and held a little seminar at. Um, so that's where we were at, very close to the airport. All right, so just some basic statistics about Haiti. There's about 10.3 million people, and these statistics are, are pretty rough numbers because they're from a couple years ago. Just to kind of give you an idea, the state of Tennessee is 6.5 million. And so as small as that island is, there's not quite double the number of people that are in Tennessee, but all squeezed into one little bitty country. And so it's very highly populated everywhere. Um, the average age there is 22 years old. That's huge. I heard that one of the ladies that lives down there said that over half of the island is under the age of 18. They said that's not because of the earthquake. That is normal for them. A lot of it's because the life expectancy is not very long. There's a lot of diseases, a lot of health issues that they have that we simply don't have here. Uh, malaria is one of the big things that people obviously hear about. Um, we took malaria medicine before we went and we're still taking it, so we're good there. Um, and the average age in the United States is 38, so just so you can kind of see a comparison. Their language there is Creole, um, down in southern Louisiana. You hear you, Louisiana Creole. They're both based on French. That's where it comes from. So it's a French base to it. They speak Creole. They are the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. That's according to the CIE's website, so I'm assuming that's accurate. Um, so it is a very poor country, and roughly 38% of the country is illiterate, cannot read or write, compared to about 14% in the United States. One of the reasons for their illiteracy about 50% of the children in the country never attend any form of school whatsoever. Never go to kindergarten, never do anything. The reason is because they can't afford it. They just simply can't afford to go. And of the ones that, of the 50% that go, 60% of those are going to drop out before they ever get to sixth grade. So that means about 80% of their country has less than a sixth grade education. That is one of the main problems in terms of them being a third world country is they just don't have the education or the knowledge to really know how to do these, what we would call your, your white collar careers. Um, there are some people in Haiti that have done that, that they do have, some, there is some money in Haiti. I think I saw about three different Mercedes driving around while I was there. So there is some money there, just not very much of it. One of the reasons they can't afford to go to school, it costs about $131 per year per child to go to school. Doesn't sound like very much. But as you see the one below it, 78% of their population lives on less than $2 a day in U.S. money. That's why they can't afford to go to school. That's a good chunk of their income the entire year would be to send one of their children to school. They've got two or three kids per family, just like we do, so they simply can't afford to do it. All right, so our goals for the trip when we went, and I'll show you who all went and all that in a second, was we wanted to hold a leadership seminar at this congregation. I'll explain why when we get to it. There was an evangelist, or basically a preacher seminar, we held at the School of Preaching one of the days. Uh, we did a teacher's workshop with Healing Hands. I'll explain what, what Healing Hands is, that organization, and what they do. And then some work projects around the orphanage. All right, so here's the team that went. There were two ladies that were planning on going that did not get to go. Uh, Joanna Strode's one of the ones we mentioned before we left, that goes to McClellan Avenue. Her mother got very, very sick right before we left, and so she decided to stay back. And then um, Teresa Pruitt, who attends at Sycamore, she decided not to go the morning we were leaving. She had got very sick the night before and didn't think it was a good idea for her to travel out of the country at the time, so she ended up staying back too. So I'll just kind of go around and, and show you who everybody is. The, I'll start on the bottom on the left. Guy in the pink bandana there, that's Wes Fox. He attends at Jefferson Avenue. Um, then you have myself, that's Ross, or Ross Garrison there in the front in the green shirt. He is the youth minister at Sycamore. Then myself in the yellow. You have Mark Key in the red shirt. He's from the Rickman area, I forget the name of the congregation, it's Swallows something Church of Christ. Y'all may know what it is, I, the name slips me. Um, you have Bobby Pruitt standing there in the gray shirt, he's one of the elders at Sycamore. Wayne Moss is one of the deacons at Sycamore, he's got the hat on. And then Brandon Pruitt, that's Bobby's son, Brandon's kind of the one that spearheaded all this. I think he's been there about four times in the last three years. Um, also attends at Sycamore. Going up the steps in the back, the gentleman at the bottom of the steps, that's Charles Vaughn. He is one of the elders at Sycamore. Um, then Deanna is there, and Rebecca Vaughn, that's Charles's daughter. She attends at Sycamore as well. 
And then Miss Judy Hill, standing at the top of the steps, and again, she attends at Sycamore. All right, so the leadership seminar at the Santo Congregation. This congregation, it, it was founded maybe 10 years ago, and there were two congregations actually next door to each other. Their properties physically touched each other. Within the last couple years, they have actually merged together in one congregation. Great. That's one of the things this group has been working to do is getting them to work together. And so they've now merged. They have about 100 on Sunday morning. So they're very similar to the size that we are. They do not have any elders or deacons right now, but that's something that they're wanting to do, that they're working on getting towards. And so we went down and had a seminar with them literally around leadership of the church. Um, and we did it Monday through Thursday. We spent three hours every evening. Um, when we got there, we broke up into different classes. We spent an hour in a ladies' class and an hour in a, in a men's class, and then we came back together, the whole congregation, for two hours every evening. This is the congregation there, their church building. Uh, again, that Estes Church of Christ in East Tennessee, bought, uh, they built the building for them. They don't own the building, but they provided the funds to build the building for them. And this is just kind of inside of it. It's just cinder block walls, a concrete floor. This is one of the nicer church buildings I saw while I was there. Um, but it's just literally a, a large open room. This is the ladies' class that met outside. The lady standing up front in the blue skirt, um, that is Miss um, Bobby Solly. I forgot her last name. Dr. Bobby Solly. She's with Healing Hands. Uh, she is a member of the church, and she taught the ladies' class um, while we were there. She did travel down with us as well. And there was a pretty good number every day at the, the classes, and this is a group we took uh, one of the days after they got done, uh, the ladies' class after they got done meeting. This is inside at the men's class. Um, one of the things we learned very quickly right there is nobody wears a watch. Nobody goes on a schedule like we do in the United States. And so we'll start at 3 o'clock, and that was about the crowd. And by about 4.30, there were probably 200 people in there. And so they just kind of moseyed in whenever they got around to it. Um, but that was one of the men's class. That's up there talking right now, that gentleman's name is Larry Waymire. He's a missionary that, that lives in the Caribbean. Um, and so he bounces around between about four or five different islands. And so he is kind of one of their main contacts there um, in Haiti, especially for this congregation. And he's the one that started that school of preaching. And he's the director of it. I threw this in there because there is electricity there but not very much. The government turns the power on for about an hour and a half to two hours a day. That's it. So if you do not have a generator, you don't have lights. So when it gets dark, dark. They didn't have a generator at the church building. Um, when we first got there, they went and got a small one while we were there um, just so they could run a little small generator. But when it got dark, we were there till 6.30 of a night, so it was dark. They would go get some battery-powered lanterns and hang them wires hanging from the ceiling. And so that's what it looked like in there about the time we were getting finished. And you just try to put yourself in, I guess, put ourselves in their, their position. What would we do if we had no power at this building? I mean, would we complain that we don't have it, that we don't have any air conditioning, well, we can't meet, we got to figure out something. They live in that every day. And they were just as excited to be there as anybody I've ever seen. I did throw in because you do see light bulbs on the building, on the ceiling now. One of the things we were going to do while we were there was help them run wiring, install lights and stuff, and get a generator out there. The congregation actually came together and did that without us before we got around to it. So these guys were willing to work. They wanted to do things to try to help themselves. And so you can a little bit see the, the size of the, the crowd that was there. We had 150 to 200 people of a night. All right. I recorded it's an audio recording of one of the songs. Now, they would... I think Randy mentioned it this morning during his sermon about as you go throughout the world, throughout the church, it's the same no matter where you go. It's the same parts of worship. You have, you have prayer, you have singing, you have scripture reading. It was really refreshing to go in to see that their worship service was the same worship service we have here. Now, they may not sing two songs and a prayer and all that stuff, but there is singing, there is scripture reading, there is the Lord's Supper. Everything that you would expect to see in a worship service, they did it. And so I pulled my little tablet out, and I recorded the audio of them singing one of their songs. A lot of them I didn't know, but a couple we recognized the melody of. So I was going to play one and see if you recognize it. And this may run about 45 seconds or so. And 
Jeff and I did not plan this. We did not plan this. I thought it was very convenient that he sang that. But this is them singing How Great Thou Art in Creole. I thought that was interesting. Now, at the school of preaching we went to, the preachers there had to learn this and sing it in English. And so I've also got a video recorded of the, the Haitian preachers there singing this in English. Is it, they, they did a really good job of it. I mean, you could tell the, the, the uh, dialect was a little off, but, I mean, imagine us trying to sing it in Creole, how well we would do. All right, so the evangelist seminar. This we went to the school of preaching. We went only on Saturday. And it was a, um, a four-hour thing that we went and did. Really, our, our theme while we were at this was trying to talk to them about unity. Unity throughout the congregations that are meeting in Haiti, working together to try to do things. That yes, they are to be um, separate congregations. They are to be autonomous. But as a church of a whole, that they should know what each other's doing. They should know each other. They shouldn't sit in this little hole and ignore the world around them, ignore the fellow Christians they have maybe 10 miles away. And so it was talking to the preachers about unity, going to scriptures in the Bible, talking um, about Nehemiah and them building the wall of Jerusalem back, the unity that they had. That's Brandon Pruitt standing up in front there, um, bringing a lesson to them to start with. And you see, we had a pretty good-sized crowd. I think there was about 60 to 70 uh, different men there. Several of them were preachers. Some of them were just students at the school. Others were ones that were just invited. Um, we had a gentleman that came that was of the apostolic faith, I believe is what it was. Um, and so there were some denominational preachers that got to come to this. Um, there's me. I got to get up and uh, share a message in front of them. Now, these men standing up right here, is, these are the preachers, the actual preachers at several different congregations in the area that got to come to this seminar. And the rest of these men standing here, these are all actual students at the School of Preaching. And so they go through, they have their curriculum, they grade everything, they have start, starts and stops of their semester, they treat it like a real school. Um, they don't live at the School of Preaching. I don't know if y'all read the article in the bulletin that uh, Brother Jack shared with us about the Tuni School of Preaching over in India. Most of them live at the school, uh, or at the congregation there, and they just go home in the week. These guys actually travel in of a day. And you can see they, they have a fairly nice building. They're renting this building right now, or leasing it. Um, while we were there, it was actually a blessing to get to be there because we got to go walk through the house. Across the street from the guest house where we were staying at, there was a home that the people running the school of preaching were able to actually purchase that home while we were there. Now, it's probably got a year's worth of work to be done to it. There's parts of it that are falling apart, um, but they're actually going to be moving the school of preaching to a house directly across the street from the guest house. Um, that will bring all these different things back in real close together. Any mission teams that go down, uh, preachers that go down to stay for a week or something and, and preach at it, they'll have a house they can stay at and be right across the street from the School of Preaching. Um, and it's also going to save them a lot of money over about a five to ten year span just from the lease that they were paying on it. I didn't mention a minute ago, and I'll, I'll go ahead and show this now, the, um, the leadership seminar that we did at the Santo Congregation. Like I said, the theme around that was to try to teach them about just leadership in the church in general. Um, the topics that we talked about, uh, and this is the topics for the main group when the men and women came back together, is the first night we had um, Bobby Pruitt and Charles Vaughn, who are both elders at Sycamore. They talked about the qualifications and expectations of the elders. Now, they've got about two or three men there that they were looking at that have the desire to be elders, and so we're time the next group goes down later this summer that they will have elders in place. Um, the next night, Wayne Moss and myself, and Wayne's one of the deacons at Sycamore, we talked for a couple hours about the qualifications and expectations of deacons. Now we left about 30 to 45 minutes at the end of each one of these sessions for them to ask questions. And there were several people <laughs> that were there at it as well. They asked some very, very deep questions. I mean questions that it would take us 10 minutes to talk about and answer. Um, that's a good thing, though. That means these guys aren't just on the surface just trying to get whatever they need to to check the box. They were serious about this. They were really wanting to learn. 
Um, the third night of it, we looked at um, the role of women in the church. Ross Garrison, who's a youth minister at Sycamore, he brought a two-hour lesson about the role of women, which I applaud Ross. That was, that was the topic nobody wanted to take on and try to tackle themselves, and he took it, and he did a great job with it. Um, and then the final night, you had, um, I believe it was Wes Fox and Brandon Pruitt did a lesson over the unity of the family and what the congregation as a whole can do together. So, all right, so talk for a minute about uh, the work that we did with Healing Hands while we were there. Now, if you've never heard of Healing Hands, I had never heard of them until we started getting things together to go on this trip. Healing Hands is a nonprofit organization that was started back in the 70s. They're not, they don't claim to be affiliated with any congregation. They don't claim to be affiliated with the Church of Christ, really. They somewhat loosely are, and it's because of their history. Um, back in the 70s at David Lipscomb, there was a class that a teacher had challenged his students for one of their class projects to try to gather a bunch of medical supplies. There had been an, a disaster somewhere overseas, and he had challenged them to gather medical supplies for them to send over as a class. And their goal was to get two suitcases full of medical supplies. By the end of the semester, they had filled two tractor trailers. Out of that class project, they decided to keep it going, to keep doing things, to keep working on it, and eventually, they incorporated it, made it a 501c3, so it's a nonprofit organization, named it Healing Hands. And that's where it came from. So most of the people who run it are members of the church. Most of the people who work at it are members of the church, even though, like I said, they don't claim to be a church-sponsored anything. Because of its history, um, they're loosely affiliated with the church. What they do is they, they do disaster relief. So when there's natural disasters anywhere in the world, they go in to try to do physical disaster relief um, to go help rebuild things. Then once the economy kind of gets back on its feet again, they'll still spend time on what they call the stabilization stage, is where they will go to uh, farmers in the area. They have an agricultural section that will go and actually teach them how to grow different crops that are, that are native to their climate, um, of how to be self-sustaining. They'll actually go to the schools and they will teach the teachers how to teach the children. Um, the statistic that we showed earlier about uh, the illiteracy rate in Haiti, well, it says 80% of the country doesn't get past sixth grade. Well, that includes the teachers. So you have teachers here at these schools teaching the children that they themselves may not have any more than a fifth, fifth or sixth grade education. So they really don't know how, or not, they don't understand how to teach kids in a way that they can actually learn and retain information. That's one of the things helps them to do, is they go and instruct teachers how they need to be teaching children. And also they provide uh, supplies to them, books, building blocks, different things. And so uh, Ms. Bobby Solly, Dr. Bobby Solly, she was a professor, I believe it was David Lipscomb, um, for like 20-something years, and she retired from there to go do with Healing Hands, and she goes to Haiti specifically around the different schools. Now, the schools that she goes to are ones that are, that are affiliated with different orphanages and stuff that are, that are kind of run by a congregation of the Lord's Church, and so I believe all the schools that we visited in this are, were tied back to the Lord's Church. All right, so here's one of the congregations, and that's Dr. Bobby Solly uh, sitting down there. The ladies... Uh, and Rebecca and Judy, they got to go spend time with Dr. Solly of a day. Um, and so that's the lady standing around here. Um, you see all the little blocks and stuff? Those are things that Dr. Solly took to them. Uh, about a year ago, I believe, she had held a workshop for the teachers to kind of give them some pointers and tips on how to do different things. And so she wanted to go back to the different schools to follow up with the teachers to see how things were going. And this is what she did, was doing here and got to go spend some time with the kids. Um, this is just a sample of some of the supplies that over the years have been donated and sent down for these different schools to use. And here, just sitting talking with the, the principals, the teachers and stuff, showing them some of the supplies that they took down to them. This is one of the orphanages. I, I got to go one day with Dr. Solly. I told her I wanted to go see uh, some of the schools she was going to. So this is one of the ones that we went to. This is actually an orphanage that has a school inside of it just for the kids at the orphanage. So the classrooms are on the left-hand side. You step up into the classroom, and it's nothing more than just a, it's either a, a concrete floor or to be a hard tile floor with cinder block walls, and a lot of them may have a chalkboard tacked on the wall and some little tables and chairs um, sitting around, and that's about it. That's their classroom. 
The right-hand side is actually the bunk rooms. That's where the kids sleep at. Um, I think they said at, at this, uh, this orphanage here, they had mattresses on their cots. Several of their cots didn't have mattresses until about a year ago. So kids were sleeping on literally box springs or the wire springs and the mesh um, on the frame of the bed. Um, we had mentioned this before, um, but this is the first time I had seen it is while we were here, I saw a couple kids that, I mean, literally had no clothes on. They didn't have any. They couldn't afford to give the kids anything. They were doing their best to try to give them an education and keep food on, food in their stomachs. That wasn't something they were really worried about at the time. It's trying to keep them alive and keep them going. Um, and so it's just, it's a very poor area. All right, so now I want to talk about a few of the work projects that we did while we were there. Um, as the ladies went with Dr. Solly to the schools. Uh, most of the men, we went either over to the orphanage that we were at or at the guest house and just did physical hands-on projects they needed done. Um, and you'll see in some of these pictures, and it was kind of a, an eye-opener for me in terms of the way that the country was from not having wealth, not having what we're used to seeing as wealth. Um, we tend to think of poverty here in the United States more in the terms of material things. It's because Unfortunately, we're a materialistic society. If you don't have stuff, then you're poor. They don't see things that way. And I think you'll see in several of these pictures is they had literally nothing while you're over there. They're, they're happy to walk around and dig through the garbage and find whatever they can, but they're happy. The kids are smiling. They're playing. They're laughing. We went over to the orphanage one night and had a devotional with the kids. They were all singing songs that we would all know. They were happy people worshiping God. They didn't see themselves as being in poverty. So it's just, it's a different way of looking at the world. All right, so one of the days, you see Deanna here is cutting up wire mesh and Miss Judy, and they got one of the kids from the orphanage to help, and Wes is sitting back there. We're building rabbit cages. The kids at the orphanage there, there's about 20 kids that live at the orphanage. Um, but one of the things that they do is every day for breakfast and lunch, they feed anywhere from 150 to 200 kids in the area. Um, the average Haitian, I think I heard while I was there, they live on about three meals a week. Not three meals a day, three meals a week. And so they don't want the kids in the community to go hungry. So the kids at the orphanage, they raise um, some animals, they raise chickens, they raise rabbits. Um, they've got a couple of ladies from the community that come and work there that just literally they run a kitchen and they cook for kids every day. And so we're rebuilding rabbit cages. They raise the rabbits, not as pets, it is food. Um, it is a steady supply. They multiply, and so they get a steady supply of, of rabbit um, that they will, as they get bigger, they'll kill them, and they'll cook them and eat them. And so we're rebuilding some rabbit cages for them that they used to have. And so we had got uh, some of the kids to come and help us, and they were excited. We were trying to teach them how to do this stuff. Um, one, it was fun for them, but it's also, I mean, we're teaching them some basic skills of how to do some of these things. They can do it without us there. There's working in, there's the rabbit cages that were there existing. We were kind of taken apart. That's me leaning inside of one of them. And you can kind of see this one cage on the front, this frame. We took it completely apart and we built back cages that were a little bit smaller than the frames. We did purposely so that if they ever need to replace them again, they can just slide them out, rebuild one, slide a new one in there. It's smaller so it's easier for the children to get out there and do things to them. It's not so overpowering to them. Now, inside the house. They had a fairly decent-sized house from what, I mean, there's 20 kids that live there, plus the lady that runs it. So there's 21 people living in this house. It's a fairly good-sized house. It was in very rough shape. Um, so one of the things that they wanted some help with are is there was some of the plumbing things. And so here, there's a bathtub. It's a steel bathtub. And if y'all have never tried to rip a steel bathtub out of a bathroom, it is not an easy thing to do. Um, literally, that's a, that's a car floor jack there on the ground that we had to basically popped the thing out with and sledgehammers hitting and everything else. It literally, it was just leaking so bad you, they couldn't use the thing. So we went and pulled a bathtub out for them and help them install a new one. It's just one of the projects we were doing there. Oop, wrong button. All right. They have, these are called chicken tractors. It's basically a chicken coop that is mobile that you can slide around for any farmers who may be in here, you understand the reason for that. It helps kind of spread manure around and stuff like that. They had about 75 chickens that they kept on the property. The kids helped to raise them. They'd harvest anywhere from 80 to 100 eggs a day, they said, from that. And that's what they used to help feed the kids in the community. Um, the, the chicken tractors were starting to get 
wore out. They'd been built a couple years ago. So one of the projects we did was kind of help rewire them with mesh. Um, you can see that's one of the kids from the orphanage inside, and that's Mark there working. We would feed zip ties inside, and he'd feed them back out to us and putting new mesh around it really to help keep the chickens in. You can see the tarp on top's getting wore out. A lot of the, the cage that was there was rusted through. All right, here's one of the projects we actually did at the guest house itself. This is an area back behind the guest house, and the wall down the left-hand side, that's the property line. All the properties are lined with center block walls all the way around them, so there is no a little fence or a row of trees to separate properties. There's cinder block walls all the way around it, and you can probably see along the top of that wall has rolled razor wire. Every property where we were at had rolled razor wire all around the property to keep people out. And I'll, I've got a few more pictures of that in a minute I'll show you. But this is back behind the house. You can see some clotheslines hung up there. This is the clotheslines where they would go and hang clothes. Yeah, you go look at that if you don't care. All right. Well, you can see it was pretty rough down below it. We wanted to go back there. This isn't a project they asked us to do. We had some spare time one day, so we wanted to go and tackle it. There's a house couple that lives at the, the guest house um, to kind of just maintain the place, take care of the mission teams that would come down. Is it on back there? Huh? It is on? Let me pull the VGA cable out of the side and put it back in. Um, but it was an elderly couple that lives down there. And obviously, as rough as that ground was, we didn't want them going back there of a day trying to hang clothes up to dry and one of them fall back there and get hurt. So we really kind of tackled that area, wanted to clean it up for them. Um, that's also where their septic tank and everything was at. And you might be able to see in one of these pictures we get this back up that there was some pieces of metal that we bolted on the ground. That's because those were holes open to the septic tank. Um, so you literally could walk back there, and if you're not watching where you step, you fall in the septic tank. Um, so we tried to get that fixed for them, get it all covered up. Um, I'll show when it gets back. There's the next picture on it that shows some plumbing. Uh, the wall of the house that was on the right-hand side, that was right next to the kitchen where we were at. And so the drain from their kitchen sink drained out underground. The pipe was about probably 8, 10 inches underground, but it stopped about a foot from the house. So all this water was just draining and going right there in the ground. And when we started trying to fix everything, it was a mess. There was muck and mush everywhere. And so we got down, dug everything out, redid their plumbing underground, dug a trench, and, and funneled that drain back to the septic tank. Um, while we are there, then we bought, there we go. I got it, Jeff. Thanks. Oop. Hit that OK button on that. Oh. Excuse me a second, sorry. All right, so that's the area. You can see kind of in the back, there's a big kind of rectangular concrete pad. It's got a little square over it. That's the metal base of a metal folding chair that we ripped off and bolted down. That's where they had a hole into their septic tank. So you can see right below the guy's legs where he's standing, that's the plumbing that was buried that we had to retrench everything out for them, ran it over to their septic tank. And then we bought a load of, it wasn't really sand, it was more wasn't crushed run that you put in your driveway, but real finely ground up gravel is what it was. Um, but it looked a lot like sand. And I tell you what, I don't know if any of y'all know Miss Judy Hill. She probably won't mind me saying she's 72 years old. I didn't realize this because I was in the back helping them dig trenches and all that stuff. She stood out here for an hour and a half and shoveled sand into five gallon buckets. That woman's a trooper. But I say that to say if anybody ever thinks in their mind, well, there's some reason why I can't do something. She's proof that any of us can do anything. And she wasn't in any better health than anybody else was. But she got out there and she did everything that she could do to try to help us. And so we take and we, we spread everything out, busted up a lot of rocks for them, and started spreading the sand. And so when we got done, this is what it looked like. And so it's a, it's a lot safer area now for them to go back there. They're not going to chance falling. And it's just trying to fix the area up a little bit. All right. So 
I figured I'd have a few minutes left at the end, and so I, I just threw some pictures in here um, just to kind of show you a little bit of what it was like when we were there. So the kids here at the orphanage, I threw this picture in there. I thought it was great. I didn't give that shirt to that kid. He had it on when we got there. So I thought that was wonderful. And this is one of the nights we went to the orphanage and had a devotional with them one night. Just sang some songs with them. Brandon Pruitt shared a little message with them one night before we went to bed. So we're sitting out there in the dark. It was neat. And I do believe those are Deanna's glasses he's wearing. And so the kids were happy as they could be. Like I said, they had nothing. I mean, they had flat basketballs they were running around playing soccer with. I mean, they had anything they could do, they could find to play with. But they were as happy as they could be. <clears throat> I showed this picture of the truck. There's about three vehicles that were kind of shared between the orphanage and the guest house and stuff um, for everybody to use throughout the week. This is one of the trucks that was used. And it, that's not a huge truck. I mean, it's a, you stand next to it, and the, the top of the bed right there would maybe come about middle of my torso. So it's a, a normal-sized truck. I count 10, 10 kids in that back seat. This was when they were leaving. The Sunday we left to come back, they came to the guest house to see us before we left uh, so we could tell them all bye. We counted 25 kids in that truck. They were on their way to worship. They're standing in the back, sitting in the back, and my understanding was they were going to pick up more kids on the way. So that, that's just the basics of how they live. Um, they had about 25 kids inside this truck. Um, there's some here that sent some stickers with us. And there's Deanna's handing out some of the stickers to some of the kids at the ladies' class that we had. I remember one of the nights there was kids, they had stickers all over their face, up and down their arms. They just, they had a heyday with these stickers. There's some of the kids just playing together. These, these were probably two, three years old, um, just playing around at the orphanage while we were there. I believe that was this at the church? Yeah, after one of the ladies' classes. The lady that's sitting there on the right-hand side, um, her name's Miss Roberta Edwards. She's probably one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Her story is back, she went to Freed Hardman to school, and she met a man there that she married. He was from Haiti. They had decided they wanted to move back to Haiti and start an orphanage uh, to try to help some of the kids there. They got there. They, they started this orphanage, the one that we went to visit. About a year and a half after they were there, her husband left her, found another woman, ran off her. She vowed she was not going to leave the kids with nothing to do. So for the last 20 years, she has been running this orphanage by herself. Um, she homeschools every one of these kids. They don't send them to school somewhere. They're all homeschooled. And so she's sitting out there doing their school with them one day while we're there working. And the kids, the younger kids were doing school, and the older ones were helping us, and they had the young kids would go play, and she'd go do school with the older kids. Plus, feeds about 200 kids in the community breakfast and lunch every day. So it's just a fascinating lady in what she's doing for the church. All right, so this home away from home, this is looking more at the guest house where we stayed at. Uh, this is what it looked like. Um, from the outside, you can see a couple, looks like 55-gallon trash cans on top, and there's some red ones way back in the background. Those are our water tanks. And so there's a pump. The water that's there was clean that we had at the guest house. There's a well that was about 200 feet deep. A lot of the water in Haiti you don't drink if you don't know where it's from. There's a lot of bacteria, disease in it. But we had clean drinking water. It would pump it up to these tanks, and then that's what would feed the showers, the sinks, anything. Um, they did have, there was four showers there. One of them was an outside shower. But of the four, one of the four had hot water. And there was a little Renai hot water heater on the back of the house. You'd get about five minutes of hot water out of it. The rest of it, it's like you're getting a shower out of a hose pipe. It was just lukewarm water. <clears throat> This was the bunks where we stayed at. Um, it was pretty much, if you've ever been to a summer camp anywhere, it was very similar to the same thing. Everybody's just kind of bunked up in one room together. The guys stayed downstairs, the girls stayed upstairs, and theirs was very similar looking to this. <clears throat> we did, most of us slept under mosquito nets while we were there, just to make sure that we didn't contract any diseases, and that's pretty much what that looked like. I will say I slept under mine for about three days, and it blocked every bit of the airflow and got, like I said, it was in the mid-80s at night, mid to low 80s, and there's no air conditioning. And it didn't allow any airflow from the fans, and so I took mine off after about two or three days and just figured I'd chance it. But that's the mosquito nets basically we slept under at night. I put this picture in here. This is Miss Charlene. She's the, the wife that lives there at the guest house. Um, this is the only picture I had of her. This guy's name is Whitlord Thomas. We called him Thomas all through the week because we thought his name. We found out like two days before we left, Thomas was his last name. His name's Whitlord Thomas. He graduated from Freed Hardman at Christmas. 
Um, he's from Haiti. He grew up Miss Roberta, he calls her mom. And he went to Freed Hardman, got a degree from there, and came back with the intention he wants to be a preacher in Haiti. Um, he lives at the guest house, and he was basically our interpreter the entire time we were there. This is inside the guest house. So we, we had a fairly nice house that we stayed in. Um, it wasn't, we weren't living deprived while we were there. We had what we needed. And like I said, while everybody here was freezing, sitting at home, that's where we ate supper every night, sitting outside. So I mean, it, was, it was fairly warm while we were there. Now, this is their winter months. You go during June, it's 115, 120 degrees. You don't sit outside eating. You try to stay anywhere you can under a fan. But we got to sit outside and eat of a night. They had two Rottweilers on the property. And again, this was for protection. This was, I don't know if they would actually attack anybody. They didn't, they were just nice they could be to us. But it was probably more for intimidation to keep somebody from trying to get on the property. And their people steal anything they can down there. And so they stayed running around the property at night. They weren't allowed inside the house. I showed this. Uh, like I said, most of the properties there have rolled razor wire around the property. You can see across the top of that wall, I don't know if you know what that is. That is broken glass bottles. So when they build the wall, they layer the top of the cinder blocks with concrete and they stick broken bottles down in the top of the concrete. So those are made in the top of the wall. So if you try to come over the wall, if you can get past the glass, you also have rolled razor wire to get through. So just their culture. Nobody worried about it. It's just what they're used to having. All right, so the area we were living in, this was the airport when we first got there, was chaos. And that building in the background, that is the airport. Um, I was a little hesitant to show this picture uh, because I, I don't want to show things that tries to exploit kind of what they're like there. But I think this picture really gives a good indication of what their environment is really like. This is just driving down the road one day, and this is one of the side streets. And that is trash everywhere. Their entire landscape is like this. And it's not, it's just, it's the way they live. It's what they're used to. Um, that's a goat just walking around trying to find something to eat. That man in the background is digging through the trash. Um, they have about 65 to 70% unemployment there. So people try to find anything they can find, one, just to use themselves, or two, that they can sell to get some money. So he's probably looking for something that he can sell on the side of the road that he can peddle. That's where he's driving around. That's somebody's house that they live in. Just grab whatever tents or pieces of metal that they can throw up just to knock the dust off of them. This was probably one of the most impressive things I saw when I was there, and it kind of chokes you up, and it, it makes you put life really in perspective. I'm standing on the property of the church building. This is the guy that lives next door to the church building. He did attend there at the, the Santo congregation. He went and got me and a couple other guys one day and brought us outside. He wanted to show us his house. He was so excited about his house. He thought it was the greatest thing ever. He wanted to go show it off, just like any of us get something shiny new, we want to show it off. He wanted to show his house off. That's his house. No roof, no windows, no doors. You can see there's clothes inside. He's got um, clothesline wires bolted between the walls that they hang their stuff on. If it rains, everything you own gets wet. But he was so happy about having that house. And it just makes it, for me at least, it made me think is, what have I got to complain about? I've got everything I could ever want, knowing how these people are living and they're happy about it. And again, this is one of those that I, I hesitated putting this in there, but it, it's, it's a really a sad situation, but kind of lets you understand what the people down there have lived through, especially dealing with this earthquake, um, not only the adults, the children as well. This is on the back of the property at the orphanage. During the earthquake, I mean, the orphanage was there, one of the walls of the orphanage crumbled and fell, and it fell on a 15-year-old kid at the orphanage. They waited for about... I think they said three days asking for somebody to come and help them to dig them out. They never got anybody to come help. There was, I mean, there's so much to be done in Haiti. They never had anybody come out there to help. So the kids from the orphanage, and this is the kids, mind you, dug them out, built a coffin, dug a hole in the back of the property, buried them themselves. And that is their handwriting on the tombstone. They just had somebody come and pour a thing of concrete, and they hand wrote on it his name and a little message to him and all that. So... Just understanding what these kids have lived through in their life, the things that they've seen that we'll probably never see. This is very common driving down the road. Like I said, so much unemployment, people are just peddling anything they can, anything they can get their hands on. And this is very common walking around, people just sitting around trying to sell what they can. 
One of the days we did get to go up uh, to kind of a lookout point up on top of the mountain. Uh, Port-au-Prince is kind of down in a valley. And so this is looking down on Port-au-Prince. Remember the shape of the country was like a horseshoe shape? That's kind of the bay area inside that horseshoe. Uh, it's a beautiful area while we're there. That's a picture of the sunset that we got one night coming down from us. I mean, it's gorgeous landscape. I'll try to go quick. I know we're getting a little bit past time. But this guy in the car, we asked if we could take his picture while we were driving down the road. I and mean, it was bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. So he said we could, and we did because he possibly may have saved our lives over there. And we didn't know it until later. This little bug you see, it flew up on the, the wall of the truck we were riding in, and we just leaned over and flicked it because it looked like a wasp or something. So we leaned over and flicked it, and Wes Fox, that's his fingers, he reached over and picked the thing up because we'd never seen it before and holding it by its wings, and he held his camera out and he was taking a picture of it. Well, this guy behind us honked his horn at us and told us to stop and to throw it away. And so we did after we got the picture. Um, and so, I mean, it wasn't huge. I mean, it was a, it was a decent-sized wasp is what it looked like. Later, we showed this picture one of the guys at the congregation, and we said, what is this? They say they call that a 24-hour bug. The reason is, if legend is, if you get stung by it, you have 24 hours to get medical attention or you will die. We didn't know that till the next day. We were holding it, taking a picture of it. So this guy possibly saved our life over there. We don't, we don't really know. Um, now, they said they'd never known anybody that's happened to, but that's kind of the legend. They didn't want to risk it. All right, so I figure I'd throw a few other pictures in. Um, do you ever need a chicken wrangler? This whale here, one of the things that Helping Hands does is they raise money to go and dig whales in third world countries. I think some of you may be aware, last year here in Cookville, there was a walk called Walk for Water. And the, the whole idea of that walk was to raise money to give to Helping Hands, to dig a whale in Haiti. That is the whale that got dug from a fundraiser held here in Cookville last year. And so we actually went to go visit it. The reason Charles and Rebecca are standing next to it is Charles, one of his other daughters, uh, Kara, she organized the walk. And so we went to go visit the whale that was dug from work that Kara had done as a fundraiser. This is a house that's sitting on the back of the property. And again, it's one of those things that just makes you put life in perspective. There's a caretaker that lives on the property, him and his family, it's him and his wife, and they have four kids. You don't ever leave a property unattended while you're there because people will steal anything they can get their hands on. So there's a guy that lives on the property of the church building. He takes care of it. A couple years ago, there's a group from Sycamore that went, and they were living in a 10 by 10 room inside the church building. The reason they were is because they used to live out in the backyard under a blue tarp, and a storm came through and tore their tarp up. So they moved inside, and I don't mean sleeping in a 10 by 10 room, living in a 10 by 10 room, six people. And so one, and when that group came, they asked them for some money so they could go buy some more tarps and move back outside where they had more space. They came back, gathered the money up, and went and built them a little house. It's 500 square foot, maybe not very big, but this family just wanted some money so they could go buy some more blue tarps and get into a bigger space than a 10 by 10 room so they could live in. This was a man walking down the road with chairs stacked all over his head. Driving in all this traffic, and you see these kids walking up to cars just cleaning your cars. That happened everywhere. This was another group. I don't know if you can see inside the windshield. It's a group of Americans that were down there. They didn't know what to do. They were scared to death. These kids walking all over their car, rubbing on the windows and stuff. And that just happened all up and down the streets. And that's pretty much what we spend most of our evenings doing while we're there, studying, doing different little things together, hanging out and talking. So, And that's all of it. You only hit the lights if you don't care. Um, like I said, if you have any questions, feel free to come and ask me. I'll kind of hang around up here for a little while afterwards. Um, the passage that I had uh, read tonight for it, it was talking about uh, unity within the church. That you now the Lord gave uh, different people to be preachers and teachers and apostles. But what I really wanted read in that was where it talked about that we can all come to a unity at some point. That's one of the things that we were really trying to push with the congregations down there is help them understand what it really means as Christians to be unified. If you got your Bibles, turn with me real quick over to Matthew chapter 25. Now I was going to read this very quickly and we'll talk about it real quick and then we'll wrap up. <clears throat> Matthew 25 verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another 
as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I don't think that passage ever really made sense to me until this trip. What does that really mean, doing something for somebody else? And I'm not saying that we have to go into a foreign country to do this. I mean, I'm going to try to go back at some point if I can. I, it was just an amazing experience. But one of the things I heard somebody say while we were there is that you do what you can with what you've got where you're at. We all can do something. It doesn't mean that we have to go and hold a meeting for somebody somewhere. We don't have to go and bring somebody in our house to live. But there's need all around us. There's people here in Cookville that are struggling. There's people here that need things. No, they don't need a handout. They literally need help. That's what we were trying to do there, but what are we trying to do here within our community? Are we going out and showing people what it's like to be a Christian? The joy that can come from being a child of God. Everything that we did there was done with an emphasis of this is what Christians do. This is what it means to be a child of God. I, I encourage you to look for areas. Uh, we've been in contact recently with the congregation out in Mountain View. That it's out in Rutledge, Tennessee that we financially support. We've been talking to them about possibly taking a group out there in a couple months to go and help them do some stuff. Uh, we may possibly go hold a meeting for them. We may do something. I don't know. We, we need to talk with the elders about it. But I encourage you. We're going to be asking for whoever wants to go, go with us. I encourage you to go. It may be a weekend trip, but it's worth, worth the effort to go and, one, meet other Christians, to go and share that unity and that relationship that we have with them through Christ, and to be able to reach out our hand. Sometimes it's not physical things they need. Sometimes it's an emotional, it's a mental thing they need. They need encouragement. They need to know that somebody is out there that cares for them, that loves them. I know I haven't always been good at that. And I hope that it's something that going forward that I can do from now on. Is it something that you as Christians have been doing? I mean, I don't expect an answer, but it's something I want everybody to kind of look within their own life. What are we doing personally that we can help out in the Lord's kingdom? If that's something that you need to improve in your life, or it may be another area in your life that you're struggling with, the, I encourage you to, to reflect on that. Maybe it's something of a public nature that needs to be taken care of, that you make the congregation here aware of, that we can pray with you and for you. If you're not part of that kingdom of God, if you're not a child of his, everything that we're doing in all this means nothing. I mean, the Bible says, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? You can do all you want to for everybody else, but you won't be going to heaven unless you're a child of God's. So if you need to become a child of God tonight, or if you, need, if you have other needs in your life that need to be taken care of, we ask you to come as we stand and sing.